And welcome to Uni Church. My name's Lachlan, if we haven't met before. About to get to know one a little bit from up the front, but love to get to know you a bit more outside as well. Uh, we've all had moments in life, haven't we, that we wish we could forget. Moments where we've embarrassed ourselves in front of others, made us feel a bit like this uh, guy coming up on screen. Next one. Uh, you know the feeling I'm talking about, those embarrassing moments where you're like, why did they have to be watching why did that person in particular have to see me make a fool of myself? Uh, the stories that come up at 21st birthday parties, stories that you wish everyone would just forget. and let you. I'm sure you're thinking of a story right now, aren't you? A moment that you have embarrassed yourself in front of others. Uh, I'll never forget the time when I was at church. It was a night service in a previous church I was involved in. About 200 people there for the service. And I was down to lead us in prayer, just like Marielle's led us tonight. I was walking down the aisle towards the stage. We had about a two and a half foot high stage, so maybe that high. Four steps going up to the stage. I was walking down the aisle and I thought to myself, oh, Lachlan, you don't need those steps. They're for the plebs, not for the cool guys like you. Uh, So I proceeded to calmly and smoothly just jump up onto that stage. Except I didn't. And in front of those 200 people, my foot clipped the stage and I fell flat on my face. Uh, That was embarrassing. My heart started to race. I was red as blood rushed to my face. Uh, My hands were shaking as I got up with my prayer prepared. took me a moment to compose myself before I could then lead the church. You've had moments like that, haven't you? We've all had those moments in life, but sometimes, sometimes the sad reality is that we can actually be embarrassed about being Christian. Have you felt that before? You're in the lunch room at work and your colleagues, they're bantering about how stupid people must be to believe in God. You're having dinner with your uni friends and they start talking about those silly Christians with their intolerant views of marriage and gender. You're trying to talk to someone about Jesus and when you get around to telling them that you think Jesus rose back to life again after being dead for three days... They laugh at you or just kind of give you that knowing smile and say, you don't really believe that, do you? As we jump into 2 Timothy this evening, we're going to meet a church leader who has grown a bit timid. And his mentor is encouraging him, don't be embarrassed. Don't be embarrassed. So my hope tonight is that we each walk out from here this evening with a clear understanding of the life-giving message that God has given to us to announce to our society, and that we leave here with great boldness to share that message in an unembarrassed way to the people that we meet this week. It's a simple aim, but it's one that I can't achieve just with my words, so let me pray now that God would work that in us by His Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You have spoken, that as we read the Bible, it comes to us as a personal word from You hot off your lips and powerful to equip us for all the good things that you have in store for us to do. Tonight, as we gather together to think about what you're saying in 2 Timothy, please give us a clear understanding of the life-giving message that you've entrusted to us. Please equip us with boldness to share that message with others this week. Father, if I say anything that's not true tonight, would that just pass from our minds straight away? But anything that comes from my lips that is in line with your word, that is true. Cause that to sink deep into our hearts and to take root and bear fruit in our lives this week and for the rest of our lives. That we might live in a way that pleases you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
So you've heard already from Ming that we're kicking off a new series tonight in the book of 2 Timothy. It's going to take us seven Sundays to work through this short letter. I highly recommend, if you haven't already done it, uh, take some time this week, 15, 20 minutes, and pull open your Bible and read the letter from cover to cover. It's four chapters. It really won't take you that long. If you don't like reading, go onto Bible Gateway online or version on your phone. Uh, plenty of audio Bibles there. Have a listen to it as you're driving to work or as you're on the bus into uni. Whatever might do for you. Get, get your way through the whole book in one sitting. Help you to pick up the main themes. What you'll notice as you read it straight through is that 2 Timothy is quite a personal letter. It's different to some of the other books that we have in the Bible. There's 66 different books throughout the Bible, all different sorts of genres represented there. You've got some that are narratives, some that's history, some poems, some wisdom literature, and a whole bunch of letters. Some of those letters are written to whole communities of Christians, to churches. Others are written... Oh, that was embarrassing, wasn't it? Others were written to persons, individuals. And what we have in 2 Timothy is one of those personal letters. Have a look at verse 1 with me. Keep your Bibles open there. And if you've got your outline, you might like to take notes throughout tonight. I'll reference some other passages that you might look up throughout the week. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, for the promise of life in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dearly loved son. So I've got a letter written by Paul. Paul was the guy who spent uh, the first chunk of his life persecuting Christians. He was there as a guy named Stephen was stoned to death and Paul was holding the jackets of the people throwing those rocks at Stephen. Paul was on his way to Damascus with the authority to find Christians there and take them and lock them up in prison. But as he was on his way to Damascus, something happened that changed his life forever. Uh, He met Jesus. Now, Jesus had already died some time before that, Paul met the risen Jesus. And Jesus commissioned Paul to go throughout the non-Jewish world speaking about him. He gave Paul the message, go and tell the non-Jewish world that I'm risen from death. That's what Paul's talking about when he says that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. An apostle is a sent one, like an ambassador. uh, Someone that Jesus has sent to represent him to the world. Someone sent to bring God's message to the world. That's who Paul was. And he's writing to this guy called Timothy. Timothy is a younger man that Paul has trained up in Christian ministry. You can find the story of Paul and Timothy meeting one another. It's in Acts chapter 16. Write it down, look it up later. Acts 16, verse 1 to 5. Paul met Timothy in Lystra. And Timothy at that point is already a follower of Jesus. Paul took him along on his travels to strengthen the churches that Paul had formed on an earlier missionary trip. Paul had gone along starting some different churches as he talked about Jesus in those places. Now he takes Timothy with him to strengthen those churches and to start more churches along the way. Paul and Timothy spent a lot of time together. They shared the joys of ministry and they shared some of the struggles of ministry. Timothy was with Paul when Paul had been chucked in prison. And throughout those joys and struggles... Paul and Timothy had grown quite close. You see the closeness in verse 2, don't you? Paul refers to Timothy as my dearly loved son. The closeness comes out more in verse 3. Paul's praying daily for Timothy, such is his care for him. He's remembering with thankfulness the genuine faith that Timothy has. Verse 4, Paul's longing to see Timothy, that they might be filled with joy. Verse 5, Paul knows Timothy's family, knows his mum, knows his grandmum. And Timothy was Paul's protege. 
a young man that Paul had taken on to train up, to apprentice, someone that could deliver God's message after Paul has died. Paul had written an earlier letter to Timothy, from which we find out that Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus so that he might get that church on the right tracks. He might set up some leaders and make sure that the truth is preserved there. Timothy, he was just a young man at this point, but he's given quite a high level of responsibility there. He's taking charge within the church. Paul has trained him up, delivered the gospel to Timothy, so that Timothy might serve God and his church and carry on the work of Paul after Paul has died. As Paul writes this second letter to Timothy, he feels like death is near. Paul's in prison at this point. He was in prison a number of times throughout his life. We see in 2 verse 9, Paul's suffering to the point of being bound like a criminal. This seems like a later imprisonment than the one we finished the book of Acts with. Like I say, Paul was in prison a number of times. At the end of the book of Acts, we meet Paul in Rome. Uh, He's imprisoned, but he's kind of under house arrest. So he's got freedom to move around from within his house to go out and teach people about Jesus. At the point that 2 Timothy's written... It's a bit later on, he's bound in chains like a criminal at this point, and he feels like life is coming to an end. By the time we get to chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, verse 6 to 8, Paul reflects that his life is being poured out, and that the time of his departure, the time of his death, is close. He's hoping that he's going to survive long enough that Timothy can get there. Timothy's about a four to six month journey away. So Paul's writing, hoping that Timothy can make it in time, but he's not sure that he will. Paul might die within that time frame. That's the context of this letter that we find ourselves reading. That Paul, coming to the end of many years serving Jesus, passing the baton on to his protege. It's quite an intimate moment that we have access to. Wonderful privilege to see what Paul considers most important to remind his budding replacement about. What's he going to say as his life ends? What's important for Timothy to remember? As Paul turns from his introduction to the body of the letter, we find that Timothy, he's grown a bit timid. He's become embarrassed. Have a look at verse 6. Therefore, I remind you to keep ablaze the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fearfulness, but one of power love and sound judgment. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. What was Timothy embarrassed about? Verse 8, Paul encourages him, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. There are two things there that Timothy might be embarrassed about. The first one, the testimony about our Lord. That is, Timothy seems to have grown embarrassed of the message about Jesus. What's that message about Jesus? Very simple. Paul summarizes it down in chapter 2, verse 8, that Jesus is risen from the dead and descended from David. It's a simple message, and it might not at first sound too embarrassing. What's so embarrassing about saying that? But let me try to paraphrase it into our modern context, give you the feel of what this would have sounded like. It's like saying that a guy called Josh... Just a common name, a guy called Josh, who lives down in Papakura, uh, and he was put on public trial before the whole nation and condemned and imprisoned as an enemy of the state. It's like saying that that guy is the rightful king of New Zealand. You're like, from Papakura? 
Yeah, nah. The king of New Zealand, that's going to come from Victoria Avenue in Remuera. Or maybe from St. Heliers. That's where the king comes from, not from Papakura. So the claim that Jesus is descended from David, that's the claim that he is the rightful king of Israel. The ruler that everyone should kneel before and, and submit to. But this Jesus, well, he was from a nowhere place called Nazareth. That's not where kings come from. And he was publicly killed and shamed. That makes it hard to say that he's king. Now, of course, the testimony about Jesus is that he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead back to new life, unending life. That's what shows him to be not only the king of Israel, but actually the God of the whole world, the one that everyone should bow before. But when we get to talking about Jesus risen from the dead, people respond, and they did this back in Paul's day as much as they do now. They respond, do you honestly believe someone could come back to life again after death? How gullible must she be? You fool. That was Timothy's message. Jesus is risen from the dead, descended from David. He was tempted to be ashamed about it, tempted to be embarrassed. I can understand what he's feeling, can't you? I'm tempted to be embarrassed about this message in a couple of ways. Sometimes I'm tempted to just stay silent, to not talk about Jesus, especially in polite company. So many people nowadays think that believing in Jesus, it's like having an imaginary friend. I'm such a weak person. I can't handle life on my own. I need to come up with someone to help me through life. I need to have an imaginary friend. They scorn, they ridicule, they mock. It's, it's easier to just stay silent, to not own up and say, I'm, I'm with Jesus. And Paul says, don't be ashamed. On the other hand, sometimes my embarrassment about Jesus, it doesn't come in the form of complete silence. Sometimes I'm tempted to just change the message about Jesus, to make it more acceptable to my friends. Do you feel that? I can think to myself, look, people seem happy enough with Christian morals, with Christian values. So why don't I just, I'll identify with those. I'll go along with the things that everyone else likes. Then I don't have to talk about this whole resurrection thing that no one likes. I can just say, yeah, Jesus was a good moral teacher. His values are great for our New Zealand society. You should like Jesus. I've risen from the dead. Oh, yeah, maybe, if you want. Returning as judge before whom I have to give an account of my life and I may be punished in hell. Oh, nah, maybe, yeah. Sadly, many Christians down through the ages and across society today have fallen into this kind of embarrassment. They deny the physical resurrection of Jesus because it seems hard for people to believe. Instead, they start talking about Jesus rising in the hearts of his believers, a spiritual enlightenment of some kind. They deny the judgment of Christ and instead say that, well, as long as you're genuinely pursuing some kind of religious truth, well, then you'll be saved. It's bollocks. Not true at all. The message about Jesus is clear. He alone is God and King. He rose from the dead and he's returning as judge. Don't be ashamed, Paul says to Timothy. Don't be ashamed, God says to us. Don't be ashamed of this message about Jesus. There's a second thing that Timothy might be ashamed of there in 1 verse 8. Don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner, Paul says. 
Now, because Paul was in prison many times through his life, we don't know exactly what's landed him in prison at this point. But from those other times, he was generally locked up for something along the lines of disturbing the peace. Paul was a bit of a nut. He liked going out into public places and talking openly about Jesus. And crowds would gather, people would be saved. Uh, He would go around trying to persuade people that they needed to honour Jesus as their God. And so he'd get locked up for disturbing the peace and things like that. You can understand why Timothy might be embarrassed about that. Prison's not a place you want to be. Many of Paul's colleagues have deserted him at this point. We'll see that as we work through 2 Timothy in coming weeks. The shame of association with a prisoner was strong. I mean, try to imagine that this happens for me. I just get a bit excited one day, go out into Albert Park and start preaching, and I get arrested for, I don't know, what would, they, what would the charge be? Uh, inciting hatred or something like that. Imagine if I get locked up in prison, uh, Ming, been training him for six months, how, how do you think he'd feel? I'm, I'm sure he'd, there'd be a temptation to distance himself from me. Okay, I'm, not, I'm not with that crazy nutter. That's not what I'm like. To wonder if I was really someone he should be associated with. Now, that's particularly tempting when you've got a certain brand of Christianity going around that's declaring, if you believe in Jesus, you can have your best life now. You can have victory over every struggle. You can live in comfort and luxury so the whole world will see how great Jesus is because he's blessed you. In the midst of teaching like that, to to end up in prison, to end up suffering for the gospel, people will think that you just haven't followed Jesus well. Now, I take it that's why Paul opens this letter with the affirmation in verse 3 that he serves God with a clear conscience, as his ancestors did. Paul's showing here in this early statement his innocence, his integrity, even as others are questioning it. And you notice Paul understands his imprisonment in a slightly different way. Verse 8, whose prisoner is he? He's not a prisoner of the state. He's the Lord's prisoner. He recognises that even as he sits there in prison, it's because God has a plan for it. That as Paul has been testifying to the gospel, sharing the message of Jesus, God's plan was that he be in prison at this point. Paul is still God's man. Don't be ashamed of me, Timothy, he says. Are you ever tempted to be ashamed of Christians who are suffering? Or of Christians who seem a bit radical to society? Now, you can be radical and wrong, okay? To be radical, that's not the measure of truth. But in our society in Auckland at the moment, to talk about the truth of Jesus is to be quite radical. To go and knock on people's doors to try to start conversations about Jesus, that's a bit radical. Do you distance yourself from Christians like that? It may not be you who speaks up in the work lunchroom about Jesus. But if a fellow Christian raises the truth of Jesus in that context and starts to face the ridicule of your colleagues, do you back him up? Do you support her? Or do you sit back in silence? Say, no, I'm not, I'm not with them. I'm not like that. The accepted politeness is to just, to just shut up and, and let people be and to be tolerant. That's the word, isn't it? That's what people want from us. You, you believe what you believe and that's okay. Just don't go telling me that I need to change and believe it too. That's too rude. But friends, if my so-called tolerance lands people in an eternal hell, I'm not willing to pay that price. I'm going to be radical. I'm going to tell people that Jesus is their God and King and that if they don't honour him, then they will face an angry God who they have despised. 
at some point in the future, a message like that may land us in prison here in Auckland. We're not there yet. In many places around the world, that is the result. Don't be ashamed. What's the alternative? Instead of being ashamed, what does Paul encourage Timothy to do? Well, verse 8 goes on, doesn't it? Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. The alternative is to share in suffering. And we're not here talking about a general kind of suffering. It's not the suffering of disease or of abuse. There are all sorts of terrible suffering in this world, and God has got lots to say about that in the Bible for us. But it's not what's on view in this passage. Here, the particular suffering on view, Paul is urging Timothy to join with him in suffering for the gospel. It's about suffering as a messenger of God, suffering rejection and imprisonment and even death because you stand up for Jesus and say that he is the risen God and King. Notice at this point that Christianity, it's not a way out of the sufferings of the world. Christianity is an invitation to join into more suffering in this world. We follow a crucified King. If they did that to him, how will they not also do that to us? That's the character of the Christian life. Don't run away from it. Join me in it says Paul to Timothy. What's happening to me in prison here, Paul says, that's not unusual. It's what will come if you stand up for Jesus. Brothers and sisters, will you do that? Will you share in the ridicule of society? Will you face the potential of lost friendships, of fractured family relationships, of being called a bigot, an idiot, delusional? Will you face being spat on, being kicked out of home, losing your job, being locked up in prison. Timothy, as he looked at all that kind of potential suffering, he was growing timid. But Paul reminds him and God reminds us tonight, we've been equipped with everything we need to endure such suffering. We've been given everything we need to make a bold stand for Jesus within our society. Have a look at verse 6. Therefore, I remind you to keep ablaze the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. There's lots of questions about this verse. Uh, I wish Paul was a bit more specific, but it's the nature of the scriptures that we've got. We're reading a personal letter here. It is God's word to us, but it's a personal letter to Timothy as well. And so Timothy would have understood exactly what Paul was referring to here. We may not be able to work it out with complete certainty, but I think we have a fair indication as we compare this passage with a couple of others. So jot them down and read them later. But as we look at 1 Timothy 4 verse 14, in that first letter, Paul also speaks to Timothy about a time that he was given a gift through the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Very similar language there. In that context, Timothy's being encouraged to give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhorting or encouraging, and to teaching. When we look back at Romans 12, again, write it down, look it up later. In Romans 12, Paul gives a list of spiritual gifts, gifts that God gives to his church. And two of the things listed in that uh, passage are exhortation and teaching. So it seems like that might be Timothy's gift that Paul's referring to, that Timothy had been given a special ability to exhort or encourage and to teach. And he's also been given an office within the church to live out those gifts. That was one of the functions of the laying on of hands. It's not 
like in this laying on of hands, there's some supernatural power and boom, it comes out of my hands onto you and now you've got it because that was in me and oh, you get all my power. That's not what's going on. Uh, rather, the laying on of hands was probably more like when the sporting team gathers together before the game. Why do they lay their hands on one another? They don't talk about it as that. They just huddle up. They get in together into the huddle nice and close so they can rally together. Say, so we're in this together. We've got the solidarity. Let's go out and do this. Laying on of hands was a bit like that. The leaders in the church would get together as they were commissioning someone for a particular task. They're saying to that person, we're with you, we support you 100%, we're releasing you to do this job within the church. So when Paul mentions here to Timothy, fan into flame, keep ablaze that gift. Well, Timothy knows that God's made him good at teaching. He knows that he's been given a role by God to teach and proclaim God's message. But he's let it slide a little bit. And Paul's saying to Timothy, blow some airs on those coals. Get that fire raging again. Get it burning within you. Stir up the flames till you've got a white hot passion to preach. I want us to notice here that having a gift from God will not naturally solve our timidity. Sometimes we can think the reason I don't talk about Jesus is because I don't have that gift. Other people have that gift. It's all well and good for them to go and talk about Jesus and to stand up for him, but God hasn't given me that gift. I want to say two things, if that's what you think. It's okay to think that and to feel that natural thing to be wrestling with. I want to say, have you asked God for that gift? Gifts aren't something that we just kind of get at the start of life and they don't change throughout life. Uh, If you want to talk about Jesus, which you should want, that's what we've been commissioned to do, ask God to help you do that. Ask him to give you that gift. But secondly, Timothy had the gift, he was still afraid. The gifting didn't solve it naturally. Uh, Paul, perhaps the most gifted evangelist we know from the scriptures, he had to ask people to pray for his boldness. Pray for me that I might speak the gospel with boldness as I should. Gifting doesn't solve our timidity. I think the only way you don't experience some sort of fear when it comes to talking about Jesus is when you're the age of many of you and Uh, that kind of bit of your brain that analyzes risk, it hasn't developed yet. You might not know that that happens. I I was blown away when I realized that I kind of turned 25 and all of a sudden things seemed dangerous. Well, what's changed? It's a part of your brain and all of a sudden you recognize that there's risk involved in things and so you stop doing stupid things like standing on the edge of cliffs, uh, other things like that, jumping off stages onto the ground. Anyway, all sorts of things I used to do, all of a sudden they look stupid. Uh, And it's the same with our evangelism, I think. As you go on in life, it's natural to feel fear. It's natural that the heart rate starts to race as you look to start a conversation that you know will be hard. It's natural for your palms to get a bit sweaty, the tingling in your tummy. At that point, we have to turn away from our resources and recognize that God has given us a great resource. Have a look at verse 7. God has not given us a spirit of fearfulness, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. See, whether or not God has given you a gift for teaching like he gave to Timothy, if you're a Christian, God's given you his spirit. A spirit basically means liveliness or vitality. It's a word that overlaps with breath. It's that which gives me life. God's spirit is God's life. And he has shared that with us. Look how Paul describes it. It's a spirit of power. It's that same spirit that was there at creation, bringing all things into existence and ordering them, separating water from water so that dry land would appear. 
same spirit that brought every creature to life. It's the same spirit that empowered Samson to tear a lion in half. Why he did that, I don't know, but that's some power to be able to tear a lion in half. It's the same spirit that empowered Saul to bring great military victories with Israel's army over the Philistines. It's the same spirit that raised Christ back from the dead. God has given us, God has given you a spirit of power that you might be sustained under suffering. Paul also tells us it's a spirit of love. God is love, self-giving to bring honour to the other within the Godhead, the Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, altogether the Godhead loving the humanity that they've created. And the same spirit by which Jesus loved us and gave up his life for us, that spirit's been given to us that we might love our fellow humanity and tell them about Jesus, even if it costs us our lives. Thirdly, it's a spirit of sound judgment. It's the same spirit that gave Joseph and Daniel the ability to understand dreams and visions. The spirit that gave David and Solomon wisdom to rule over a nation and bring wise judgments in disputes. God's given us his spirit that we might be wise, knowing ourselves, knowing other people, knowing the time that we live in. God hasn't given us some spirit of fearfulness, of timidity, of shrinking back, losing courage. No, God has given us his spirit. And by relying on the power of God, we cannot be ashamed but share in suffering for the gospel. What does that look like practically to rely on God's spirit? It means that when the opportunity comes for you to speak about Jesus and you feel the nerves come, you feel your heart starting to race, your hands start to shake, it means that in that moment, you just start to speak. You move through that consciousness that's trying to stop you from speaking and and you trust that God will sort out the rest. You just start talking. You step through the fear. And the fear might not dissipate straight away after your first sentence. But as you keep stepping through that fear, God supports you and helps you to have that conversation. It means that you step into suffering for the gospel and God sustains you with an energy to persevere, an energy that's greater than your own natural capacity. Lots of stories that testify to Christians bearing up under persecution in an extraordinary way as God supports them by His Spirit through those times. A book that you might look to check out called Tortured for Christ, written by Richard Wormbrand. Uh, He was a guy who was in prison for 14 years in communist Romania. He was tortured in horrible, horrific ways. But he speaks of the fact that in that prison... He experienced and saw such joy among the Christians that just didn't make sense. Where would that joy come from in the midst of horrific torture? It's the Spirit of God supporting His people, giving them the strength and the energy to sustain them under persecution. Paul says to timid Timothy, Don't be ashamed, but share in suffering, for God has equipped you with everything you need. After encouraging Timothy in this way, Paul shows Timothy his own example. He shows Timothy what has enabled himself, Paul, to continue even while he's in prison. Have a look at verse 11 and 12. For this gospel I was appointed a herald, apostle and teacher. That's why I suffer these things. But I am not ashamed. 
because I know the one I've believed in and I'm persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. Why is Paul not ashamed? Because he knows the God of the gospel. He knows who it is that he trusts. That's who he describes for us in the great verses of 9 and 10. Paul trusts in the God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. God saved us. Now, that's offensive news to our proud hearts. It tells us that we lack something, that we need saving, we need help. Once we get over ourselves, though, recognize that we are in trouble, that we can't fix it, gosh, isn't it good news that God saves us? What did he save us from? He saved us from the just punishment we deserve as sinners, as people who have offended him and broken his holy laws. You might be here tonight and you're not a Christian. You've been hearing throughout this, this call for Christians to suffer in sticking up for Jesus. And you're thinking, what? why would they do that? If you're here tonight and that's, that's the case for you, please see tonight that you need to be saved. And this is why we do it, out of love, that you might be saved. As long as you distance yourself from Jesus, you are sitting squarely under God's righteous anger and you will perish. Death will come and then you will face punishment. Now, I say that not as someone who's better than you and somehow is immune to this judgment. No, I I say that as one who deserves the very same punishment as you. I needed to be saved as well. And it's not because I've done anything that I've been saved. Have a look at verse 9. Couldn't be clearer. God saves us not because of anything we've done. Christianity, it's not a message of good morals of rituals that if you follow them, then you'll be saved. God saves us freely, by grace, an undeserved gift, unmerited favor. I was thinking about unmerited favor this week, tried a few different illustrations to explain it. The one that came to me this week, it was like at school nowadays, I don't know if you guys experience this, it might be different in our time. At school nowadays, every kid kind of comes home at some point with an award, uh, Not necessarily one that they've earned, right? Because it's just like the teacher goes, who have I not given an award to yet? Okay, it must be time for Jimmy to get an award. What can I say that's for? It's an undeserved favor, an undeserved gift. That's what grace is. Something we haven't done anything for. But just because God wants to extend grace to us, wants to extend love to us, he gives it to us. We need to be saved and God saves us if we just confess that we've wronged him and ask for forgiveness in Jesus. Perhaps you need to do that tonight. God saved us and he called us with a holy calling. Now, Christians bandy around this language of calling in all sorts of different ways today, don't we? Uh, Many of them are unbiblical. We talk about being called to the ministry, called to be a doctor, called to go to Venezuela, as if there's some kind of inward subjective feeling that I feel God's directing me in this way. But notice the true biblical sense of the word calling here. It parallels salvation. He saved us and called us. To be called is to be invited by God to live a holy life, to be invited into eternal life. That's what calling means. When did God decide to do this? Look at verse 9. It's mind-blowing. Before time began. That's how secure God's salvation is. That's how unrelated it is to our efforts, to anything that we've done, even to our attitudes. God chose to save us before you even existed. 
How could it have anything to do with your performance? Before time began, God chose to save some. And he's worked throughout history to bring those elect to salvation, giving them repentance and faith so that they turn to Christ. Your salvation does not depend on you, friends. That's wonderful news. It is far more secure than to be based on your and my frailty. God has chosen us, and those whom he's chosen, he's called. Those whom he's called, he's justified. He will not lose a single one of his elect. Now, if that raises questions for you, you want to think about that some more, Ming mentioned generate earlier. One of the topics we'll look at throughout that generate series is the doctrine of grace alone, and we'll read some Calvin. So come along, dig deep into theology there. Theology drives our practice, it drives our ethics. Good to think hard about things like that. Let's keep moving into verse 10. Let's see more of the God of the gospel. Notice what God has done in Christ. He has abolished death. Now, abolished is not quite the right word there. I don't think. We, we look around and death is still here. When, when we hear that word abolished, we think done away with completely. Don't see it anymore. Uh, there are some other English translations that I think better capture what Paul's saying here. Uh, other translations will say Jesus broke the power of death. That's the word that he uses. Jesus made death impotent, took away any power that it had. It still comes for us, but it no longer has the last word. What we experience now as death is but a shadow of the reality of death. For instead of death, Jesus has brought life and immortality to light. For us who trust in Jesus, we have a hope beyond this life. Death is not the end anymore. We don't need to fear it. Like Jesus rose from the grave, well, so we too will rise to a new life, into a perfect new creation, never to die again. Now, this isn't some boring and tragic immortality. You know, you sometimes see on movies and TV shows, the person that lives forever, it's really sad. Everyone around them's dying. They can't fall in love because then they'll die. Like, it's, that's not what we're talking about here. This is an immortality that is satisfying and beautiful, surrounded by a community of others who are immortal with you that love you. You're in the company of your creator who loves you. And you're in a creation that has a majesty that puts the Grand Canyon to shame. This is the kind of immortality we're talking about. It's a future to look forward to. So this is our God. A God who saves us and calls us not according to our works, but according to his purpose and grace. Given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. We serve a God who has broken the power of death and brought life and immortality to light. So Paul says in verse 12, I'm not ashamed because I know this one that I've believed in. I know he's there. I know he's powerful. I know he is good. This is our God. Friends, as we close, we're not Paul. We're not Timothy. We haven't met Jesus on the Damascus Road and been commissioned to take the gospel to the whole non-Jewish world. We haven't been given responsibility over the church in Ephesus through the laying on of hands and a particular gifting. It's not us. But we have all been commissioned by Jesus to go into the world and make disciples. Matthew 28. It's a call to all who are Christians. Make disciples of all nations. We've been expressly charged by Jesus to share the news of his death and resurrection that more and more people might join us in that hope of immortality. So don't be like the polar bear that we saw at the start. Look at him there, feeling all 
embarrassed and ashamed. Don't let that be you. Ashamed of Jesus, ashamed of the radical Christians that speak up for Jesus, even though it's considered impolite. Instead, I want you to be like this second polar bear. That looks a bit better, doesn't it? Confident, bold, relying on God, looking to the future, looking to the hope of eternity and immortality. Join in suffering for the gospel, friends. Uh, In God's providence, as I was working on this passage throughout the week, he gave me an opportunity to apply it to myself. Uh, I was sitting in a cafe, little cafe in Sandringham, working on this passage, writing up the sermon. And a customer came in, started talking to the barista. I don't know how their conversation started. I was working away. I wasn't eavesdropping at the start. But I, I heard him start to say, oh, you've got to say to them, you know, prove it. You can't prove that God exists. You know, they, they think it's on us to prove that God doesn't exist, but they've got to prove that God does exist. And my ears pricked up. I'm sitting there thinking, I just want to sit here and keep working. No, oh, come on. No, God. I, I couldn't. I couldn't sit there. I'm like, look at this passage that I'm working through. It's so tempting to sit here in silence, to let this person say what he likes about God and not stand up and say, no, I'm actually, I actually believe in God. Um, I actually think that you can know that he's there. I was sitting there. My heart started to race. The pen in my hand started to shake as I thought about what I'd say. I, I didn't want to do it. I don't tell you this to make me sound good or anything. I just want you to see that fear. It's not going away. I'm not trying to present to you that you need to all of a sudden not be ashamed at all. We we will feel that temptation to shame. That's natural. The key is what will you do next? Will you trust God and rely on his spirit? I ended up trying to get into this conversation. We talked for an hour. I can't remember exactly what I said to, to start the conversation with him and introduce myself into it. But I do remember how the conversation ended. Uh, and hey, Adrian, if you ever listen to this recording, hope to see you again one day and come along to church. It'd be lovely to see you again. Uh, the conversation ended with Adrian walking away saying, oh, you know, it's been a great conversation. Now I just know that you're delusional. All right, cool, great. That feels good, doesn't it? Uh, we will share in suffering for the gospel. That's okay. We have a God who has defeated death who holds out a hope of life. So this week... Talk about Jesus. Don't be ashamed. Look for the opportunities. Pray for the opportunities and take them when they come. Let me pray for us now. Father, we praise you tonight. We praise you for who you are, the God who saves. The God who saves not because of anything that we've done, but simply because you are gracious and loving and you see us in our sin. You see us distant from you. And you want to save us. You want to bring us back into relationship with you to share eternity with us. Thank you so much for that. Thank you that you've destroyed death and taken away its power, that we don't have to fear it anymore, but we can look forward to resurrection life, that just as Jesus rose from the dead, so we too will rise. Thank you so much for that. Father, this week, give us boldness. Please help us not to be ashamed of Jesus. We trust that you will bring opportunities up this week for us to speak of him. We think of the people in our lives that don't yet know Jesus. We know the opportunities will be there. Father, help us to see them and help us to take them. Strengthen us in those times by your spirit. We might speak for you, speak of Jesus. And please save people this week. Please save the people that we talk to and and bring them to join us in the hope that we have of everlasting life. 
We pray this for your glory and for our joy. Amen.